This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Listeners, welcome to a very special episode of Seeing and Believing, where we welcome you, beckon you into our dark labyrinth of thorny moral dilemmas and impossible-to-answer questions. Sarah, I'm looking forward to really just torturing ourselves with what we need to do versus what we can do versus what our moral codes require of us. And will anybody believe us either way, honestly? Who can say? It's going to be a difficult one for sure, but I am looking forward to talking about these two films with you. It's an exciting day, listeners. We are going to be talking about the 1931 version of Dracula in our brand new second segment that we're launching this week. But before that, we've got an even bigger treat for you all. We're going to be talking about the new Asghar Farhadi film, A Hero. Don't miss it. It's going to be really great on episode 319 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, listeners, we're here on a really big episode of the show. We teased this last week where we are going to be starting up a brand new second segment here in the back half of the show. Sarah, this was something that we talked about uh, for a while when you were first set to come on as permanent co-host. We were talking about how, you know, the recommendation segment was great, but maybe we needed to kind of chart our own path here for uh, a new duo on the show. And we came up with this uh, new segment in the second half of the show that, I don't know, I'm really looking forward to that'll kind of, in a way, it is sort of its own recommendation segment. Is yeah, it's more like a recommendation segment that's also a review on its own, and uh, I appreciate it just because I also appreciate watching movies that didn't necessarily come out the year that I'm watching them in, um, because it feels like it's a good way to, I don't know, expand on my own uh, film literacy and then also to appreciate the art that's come before. So I'm excited to go way back into the past for this particular episode, and then maybe <laughs> do a little bit of jumping around here about movies that you'd like to talk about and then maybe learn something new along the way too. Yeah, and as an added bonus, it's it's not just the host is dishing out the recommendations. In a way, it's like you recommending a movie to me that I get to watch mm-hmm. for the very first time or vice versa. So it'll be a lot of fun, listeners. Definitely stick around for that second segment because it's going to be a fun one to talk about for sure. Uh, but for now, we're going to turn our attention to the new release for this week, which is the new Farhadi film. And it's not every day that we get a brand new Asghar Farhadi film, which is uh, a big treat for 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 us. And definitely for me, I'm just a big time Farhadi fan and I'm looking forward to, uh, I, I always look forward to talking about his films just because I feel like no director really makes films quite like him. So mm-hmm. they're always interesting to to talk about. This new one is titled A Hero. And it follows the story of Rahim, a man in jail for a debt he can't repay. 
When Rahim finds himself in possession of a lost purse full of money, he sees a possible way out of his bind, but after an attack of conscience, he locates the purse's owner and returns it. But this sets in motion events that could result in his freedom from debt and prison, or the complete ruin of his reputation. Sarah, this being a Farhadi film, of course, it's no surprise that a hero features moral dilemmas and irreconcilable conflicts aplenty. Maybe we can start by considering it as part of Farhadi's body of work as a whole, or perhaps at least just situating it in kind of his pet themes and techniques. How do you see a hero fitting into those pet themes and techniques? And how well did this particular film work for you this time around? So this is the moment where um, I give a true confession and I say uh, the only other Farhadi movie I've seen is Everybody Knows, which came out in 2018. So this feels like really ripe ground, not just for the new release section of the podcast, but maybe we can also talk about some of his previous work uh, in later recommendation, like back half ends of the podcast as well, Um, because I don't know enough about this filmmaker, but having seen Everybody Knows and then having seen A Hero just this week, um, I can say I really want to see more of what he's doing. I really appreciate the level of moral clarity and nuance that he's bringing to the table for these two movies in particular, but especially for A Hero. There's just a level of um, precision to the filmmaking that he's doing that I just don't really see anywhere else. So, Kevin, I know you're a big Farhadi fan. Um, How did you feel about this particular movie? So every year there's always at least one movie where, you know, we do our top 10 list, our, our, our favorite films of the year and, you know, publicize that, release it for all the world to see. And then I, there's one more movie that I catch up with that, that I, (laughs) that I wish I could go back in time and watch before making our best of the year episode because that film would be on it. I just want to revise it, revise the list to make sure it gets included. And A Hero is one of them. And it's especially chagrining for me this time around because I would probably say A Hero is my favorite movie of of last year. I just, I love this movie. It it's and it believe me it takes a good movie to knock Pig off of its pedestal, <laughs> yeah. um, but if anybody can do it, Farhadi can. It's just I I, I like what you say about moral clarity. I guess mm-hmm. when in, in your introductory statements because I think that's what I appreciate most about Farhadi, both as a as a director but as a writer. He writes all of his all of his own films, and he just has this wonderful sensibility where. He has a very clear sense of right and wrong, mm-hmm. and um, not only does is the audience very well, very much aware of it, the characters in the film are very much aware of it as well. But that doesn't stop them from maybe trying to find wiggle room around that unbending moral code, just as as any of us sometimes find ourselves doing, and mm-hmm. that's really. In, in out in force here with a hero and i think the you know the one of the very first sequences in this film is the main character he's going to meet his brother-in-law and farhadi's camera follows him uh, as he walks across this archaeological dig i think it's yes. the tomb of xerxes that's mm-hmm. being excavated by the brother-in-law and 
uh, Farhai's camera just pans up and up and up as Rahim ascends these stairs and this construction scaffolding. And I don't know that there's a more tidy visual metaphor for Farhadi's whole deal than the sight of a lone figure, you know, moving up and up and slowly becoming more and more lost among the intricacies of all these interconnecting, mm. you know, struts that are holding up the the scaffolding and the stairs that he's going up. And by the end of that shot, he's almost lost among all this this web of metal that are kind of almost like a cage mm. for him. Mm. And I feel like that that you know, obviously that's a metaphor for this film particularly, but also seems almost like a mission statement from Farhadi in general, saying like these characters find themselves often entrapped by by right and wrong and the the gap between what they know is right and what they actually want. And I just found that to be so potent and let me know that I was going to be in for a really great film. And man, this is a movie that really backs up its threats. (laughs) It does. It's funny that you mentioned the scaffolding, too, because I think there's also a level of dramatic irony that's happening in that shot, too, because Raheem looks like he's ascending. He looks like he's getting up and up to better places. He's on leave from prison. He's going to see family. And yet he's still getting trapped by his circumstances and by the choices that he's made. And I found this movie doing that sort of visual communication all throughout. Like there is that level of clarity and precision throughout the entire runtime. It doesn't just start off with a bang with like a lot of really good, long, interesting, intricate shots. Um, But it keeps doing that in ways that fit the mood in the scene. So when Raheem's girlfriend first comes down to see him from her apartment, she's actually descending a staircase. But she doesn't descend the staircase in a single shot. She goes down, and then when she disappears behind a wall as the staircase like winds behind uh, the column that it's wrapped around, the camera actually cuts. It does a really quick jump cut to where she's going to appear again. And then it does it again, and it does it again. So three quick jump cuts so that you always keep track of her as she's descending a staircase case towards Raheem and potentially ruin Um, just like a lot of lovely visual flourishes like that that didn't really feel like they were calling themselves out Um, they're just there and they're there to serve the purpose of the story so um, I just I I felt like I was in the hands of a master as I was watching this movie yeah, the uh, the critic Tim Brayton is is a favorite of mine, and he observed in his review of of a hero that the thing about Farhadi is that he's got this um, very neo realist sensibility to him, right? Like you, you think of you know bicycle thieves or something, something mm-hmm. that's he, he that's very concerned with you know average people finding themselves in situations that ask a lot of them mm. and that is primarily interested in human behavior it's not interested in you know you know high concepts or or genre storytelling or anything like that but the thing about farhadi is where these other films um are much more interested in just um very plainly um capturing the action and and the characters in front of the camera farhadi takes that neorealist sensibility but he he wraps them in this incredible visual sense where he's constantly um telling things uh through his visuals that mm-hmm. the the characters don't say and don't even realize and mm-hmm. gives a sense of a very a, a world that is simultaneously naturalistic but also very stylized it's it's incredibly amazing just how he's able to pull that balancing act off and i just love how 
well he does it here with you know the all the staircases all the shots of characters ascending descending being on different elevations from each other Mm -hmm. and of course those panes of glass where characters are constantly sort of partitioned off from each other through through clear glass and then you know they can see each other but they can't reach each other oh yeah i was gonna bring up the glass actually just now um so i'm glad we're on the same wavelength here um there's a scene uh in several scenes actually in kind of a like a courtyard full of shops where all of the shops uh none of the walls are actual walls they're all made out of glass and um it really feels like uh Rahim is kind of trapped in a fishbowl in a lot of these scenes and he doesn't even realize that everybody else is watching what he's doing as he's doing it and every single time he walks into that setting he ends up doing something to make a complete fool of himself and everybody around him knows it um it just felt very like suffocating almost but in a way the the scene was allowed to breathe because it really just kind of stretches out over time and that was one of the other things that i noticed while watching this movie was that it got really tense and stressful especially towards like the last third of the runtime i had no idea (laughs) what i was in for when i started this movie i had no idea that i was going to be in just such a state of agony over this character and his and his troubles (laughs) i did not feel that sense of stress or anxiety, even though I knew the basic premise of the movie when I started it. And then as time went on, um, you could sort of see each of his little decisions that feel very innocuous in the moment as he's making them or as he's saying them. He says something that's not quite true, but it's close enough to the truth that it passes for true and nobody's going to question it. And then that comes back to bite him later on down the line. And then his reactions to those decisions just sort of cascade like dominoes. And every time it got to the point where every single time he made a decision or turned around or opened his mouth to say something. I could feel myself tensing up because I knew that whatever it was that he was going to do, it wasn't going to get him out of his situation. It was just going to keep entangling him further. Yeah, I'm 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 chuckling while while you're describing that because I feel like one of the the signature sensations that lets me know that I'm watching a far hottie movie is just this this knot in my stomach mm. where I I desperately want the the like there there's this tension constantly crackling where all these these different characters they all want uh certain things and the some of those wants are just plainly can't be reconciled with each other and yet there's not an easy good guy or bad guy where you kind of mm-hmm. say okay well I want to root for this one person against this other person for Hadi doesn't he never gives us that out where there's a boo hiss villain on one side and a hero on another one mm-hmm. and we get to choose who we align ourselves with so that the tension can be released and he doesn't he doesn't let us have that um he doesn't give us a hero which you know the title of the film is very ironic because He's really Farhadi's really interested in showing how Rahim can uh through through just you know kind of half truths or or even not even half truths, just small exaggerations mm-hmm. and the attention of others and kind of their own agendas for using his story of returning this money, how all of those things can can build up and and build up into a straitjacket for him <laughs> and eventually something's going to have to give and whether or not he's seen as a hero you know that's it's not just a matter of his reputation that's a big part of it and that's really important but it ends up being a, a matter of you know his his 
ability to live you know is he going to have to go back to debtor's prison Mm -hmm. is he going to find a way out from under this huge debt what's going to happen to him all of it rides seemingly on every single decision that every single person makes and that's just like like you said it's agonizing to watch but in the best way and the moment somebody does something you know for a fact that three other people are going to do something else in reaction and then once that's gone and done like it's it's Mm -hmm. unraveling there's no way to re-ravel uh anything that's ever happened in this situation it's just going to keep on going out of control and at the same time like while it's unraveling like you said tightening the like tightening the the bonds around this character and into the the mess that he's created for himself which i yeah i don't know i i feel like i kept wanting to assign blame one way or the other across the entire cast of characters and every time i wanted to assign that blame i kept thinking oh no it couldn't have been their fault it's the fault of this other person who was tangentially related or it couldn't have been this person's fault it's really this awful debtor's prison system that Raheem is stuck in it couldn't have been their fault either they're just trying to do their best too like every single person is both culpable for the wrongs that have been done in this movie and also at the same time they're all trapped by that sin and culpability as well it's just it's it's a remarkable balancing act because it's an absolute tangled mess. And at the same time, Farahadi presents it in a way that is utterly clear-eyed about what's going on. Yeah, the I, I like what he does with the character uh, Baram, I think is his name. He's Rahim's creditor. He's the one who uh, Rahim got in debt to, couldn't repay, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually uh, landed him in debtor's prison because of that debt. And of course, because Rahim is, you know, he's, he's our, our protagonist and he is just uh he seems like a just a, a really good person he's somebody mm-hmm. who you know got a got a bad shake with with a business deal and that's how he ended up in debt and the performance he's just got this wonderful smiling energy like he seems very gentle mm-hmm. and so you want to sympathize with him and you want to very much dislike his creditor the, the guy who's constantly holding this debt over his head mm-hmm. and who refuses to let him pay it back bit by bit you know he wants it all or he wants nothing and then as the film goes on farhadi starts to show us how baram has his reasons Mm -hmm. for being so inflexible how the uh debt that rahim has incurred uh isn't just a matter of of money it has had an effect on baram's family as well and that's kind of a signature Farhadi touch as well, just being able to take this person who a lesser film would turn into the, if not the boo, his villain, at least the guy who you kind of, he's he's the, the heel here. He's the obstacle that is keeping Raheem from living his life. And Farhadi wants to hold that up and say, no, there, there are real people on all sides mm-hmm. of a conflict. And understanding that and learning to have compassion for all of them is part of what makes us human and and it's part of what uh, hinders some of these other people from being able to find a solution in this story that we're watching you know the, yeah. all, all of them kind of they have their own thing and you know they want to help but they just can't quite let go of what they need as well i i think it's i don't know watching for high films it makes me really contemplate 
the nature of grace and mercy and why it's so difficult to incorporate those into our own lives and also why it's so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Especially incorporating it with the eye that Farhadi has because he is capable of presenting these characters in all of their messy glory and also presenting them in all of their humanity and worth as well. Um, and it just it it struck me every single time the plot took a turn, every single time somebody said something to sort of tighten the screws <laughs> on the tension. Um, I was still very much aware that this was also a person with needs and wants and fears and loves and probably debts of their own as well that maybe they'll also never be able to repay. Well, and it's also he what Farhadi does with uh social media and and maybe just mm. modern media in general, I think is is really interesting. And it's not something I've really seen in any of his other films where the the power that uh, a televised image has mm. or that a social media post has um to not necessarily warp reality but present a lens on reality that makes it difficult to that that pre- presents an obstacle i guess to understanding others mm-hmm. um that kind of presents a certain facet of them where um it's easy to assume that you're you're kind of seeing the whole picture but you're really only seeing a part of it and i i, I don't know i thought i found his critique of of media in this film to be uh, very trenchant, but not uh, not in sort of the black mirror sense of where it's like, yeah. you know, Facebook is going to kill us all, uh, although it will. Yeah. But, uh, but next question. Know, it, it's yeah. not in that. Right. Yeah, uh, it's it's not that blatant, but it's definitely there. And he it, it's very intentional and very well done, I thought. Yeah, I think to the to the Black Mirror piece, which is a TV show, I really have a hard time caring for um, because it is so simple. I th- I think that the way that Farhadi teases out why the way that the media is presenting this story is wrong is is really what made me feel more compelled by his argument. It's not just TV is going to kill us all or social media is going to kill us all, which it probably will. But um, here (laughs) are the reasons that it works. (laughs) And here's the reasons why it works the way that it does. So early early on in the film, Rahim is is called upon to um, talk to a TV crew about the good deed that he has done, finding the owner of this purse. And as he walks through the decisions that he made he's caught trying to present himself as his best possible self for the cameras and then he's also stuck with this simplified version of the story that isn't quite the whole truth but it's close enough that it might as well be good enough at least to air on a feel-good soundbite of five minutes or so and then everybody starts to take what was said on that TV program as absolute truth. And so the moment that something starts to deviate away from what was presented purely as entertainment is also used sort of to to damn Rahim and the choices that he's made, even though he wasn't necessarily the only person making those decisions about how to present himself in the first place. It's It's a very knowing portrait of media and of the way that we tend to be fairly credulous about media and accepting about media, um, while also recognizing that 
eh, I mean, I mean, Raheem is trapped by the decisions that he's made and what he's said on camera and to the cameras. And maybe he shouldn't have said what he did, but he's also not entirely culpable because those who have received that message as well um, have made a decision about him just based on five minutes. They don't know him. They just know this image of him that isn't entirely accurate. Farhadi is so good at portraying the insidiousness of of that quality of self-presentation and and of of the media the 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 thing that i keep coming back to when i think about this film is the various ways that raheem's son is used over mm. the course of this picture so mm-hmm. raheem's uh son uh siavash i think is is yes. uh his name is uh suffers from from a speech impediment and over the course of the of the film, we we see Siavash, you know, struggle in school, struggle to relate to others, struggle simply to, you know, communicate and make his his needs known, and then we see how other people, up to and including Rahim, kind of like to you know bring him out, say like, oh, isn't he so precious? Wouldn't it be so sad if his daddy went back to prison? You should donate. Or, you know, isn't it, isn't it so difficult that I have this son who, who, you know, needs me, please don't send me back to Darius prison. And, you know, everyone faces that kind of temptation. And it's not necessarily because it's not true that Siavash needs Rahim at home, that, um, that he does face challenges that other children don't face. But again, the way it's used to, as sort of, a supporting strut in this overall argument uh, by various characters to sort of influence people in the way they want is, I don't know, it's, it's, like you said, it's a very knowing portrait of human nature. It feels like a form of of ableism too, like taking advantage of this, of this child's disability in order to, um, I don't know, support Rahim's purposes and attempts to get out of prison um and it feels like it's reducing this um it it feels like it's reducing siavash just to his disability as a child with a stutter as opposed to he's a child who happens to have a stutter and he's so much more than that disability but also like there are things that come along with that 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 color the way that he moves in the world. And I think that just like Raheem is sort of simplified by the television program and then by everybody else who comes into contact with him afterwards, Sivash is sort of, of simplified as well um, because of the way that people perceive him when they first meet him too. Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's a heartbreaking portrait. And I, 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 I don't know, I was just kind of struck by how sensitively that was drawn, how Raheem could be a loving father and also someone who also uses his son in a pretty horrible way. And that's something that's, that's even called out directly to him by his creditor, you know, probably the least sympathetic character in the entire film. You know, he has Rahim's number. He knows what Rahim is like, even though that's colored obviously by their, um, you know, by their difficult relationship. He, he does he sees things about Raheem that other people in their rush to make him a hero kind of they prefer to neglect or say, oh well, you know, there's extenuating circumstances. And Farhadi, I think the miracle of Farhadi's films is he he recognizes, yes, there are extenuating circumstances, but that's not necessarily 
an excuse for abrogating your your moral code. There's there's an exchange between Rahim and uh, one of the administrators at his debtor's prison where he he says, you know, they're 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 making it out like I lied. I didn't lie. And the the administrator fires back with, but you didn't tell the truth. And in that moment, they're both right. And man, it hurts. It really does. Rahim also has this um, chorus that he keeps re- returning to over and over throughout the movie where he, he is called to task for what has happened in the past. And then he opens with, well, the truth is. And then he proceeds to explain what has happened. Like the truth is, the mm-hmm. truth is. And the truth is always more complicated than what he's saying. It's it's always more complications all the way down. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's remarkable how simple and yet impossibly complex this entire story is because the truth of the story is Raheem did something that he was hoping to be recognized for that might get him out of a tight spot but then also the truth is everything else that possibly happens throughout the plot that I couldn't repeat here because then I'd just be recounting the plot beat by beat yeah well it's it's that that old uh you know ethical dilemma you know are you truly being good if you do something partially with the desire for your own gain mm-hmm. does that nullify the goodness how do, how exactly in the you know weights and measures of morality does does that all shake out and it's just <laughs> we're, we're char- Heidi's characters are weighed in the balance and and found wanting yes. but all of us are weighed in the balance and found wanting all mm-hmm. the time in in you know in the eyes of cosmic justice and i think Farhadi's films remind us of that, I think, I think, and especially this one. It's a really uncomfortable mirror, but I'm really glad that I looked into it. Yeah, well, listeners, it's a mirror that you should definitely look into, too, if you can. Uh, a Hero is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, so you can check it out there. If you've had a chance to watch it, obviously, let us know. We would love to talk about this film some more. I personally would love to talk about this film some more. It's my favorite uh, retroactively, it's my number one <laughs> film of 2021, and I, I can't wait to revisit it sometime soon. Uh, stick around. We're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to jump into 1931's Dracula. Well, that was wow, uh, Sarah. I don't know about you. I'm I'm kind of a, a little bit sweating after that discussion of a hero. We, we you know, it was uh, an intense film. I'm really happy that we had that discussion, though. Uh, you, you were talking just now uh, during the break about uh, it feeling a lot like uncut gems to you, and how it made you want to. I, th- I think the words you said were peel your own face off. Yeah, <laughs> it stressed me out a lot more than I expected it to. Um, definitely a very different style from Uncut Gems, very much a different 
type of truth telling, I think. But the sentiment's the same. Like everybody keeps getting caught up in uh, their own version of reality and then having to come to terms with the fact that reality is a little bit more complicated than that. So um, I don't know. I, re- I really felt uh, a big adrenaline rush, especially towards the end of a hero. Um, thrill ride is not the right word for it, but um, a, a similar feeling no, of like relief like, towards the end. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned uncut gems and I remember the la- the final sequence of that film as we were kind of like beginning to tip over into the, the, the final, uh, again, the thrill ride doesn't seem right, but it felt to me like a, like a, a roller coaster. Like I could sense, Oh, you know, we're about mm-hmm. to go over the hill and then <laughs> yeah. it's just going to be, it's just going to be too much and be overwhelmed and, uh, a similar, you know, different, but slightly similar feeling here with a hero listeners. If you, uh, get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, whenever you start a new seeing and believing episode, like it's thrilling and you just, you can't wait to be taken <laughs> on the ride, then you, you like that segue there, Sarah. I, I do. I'm yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I ruined your take. <laughs> No, it is it's totally fine. We are going to leave that in the episode, listeners, because that's who we are. We are genuine. We're unvarnished. We tell it like it is. We're telling the truth. And if you like, right, we, we tell we tell the truth. Uh, and hopefully there is no Farhadi to tell us where we uh, where we come up short in on the ledger there. But um, if you like what you, you hear on, on this show, uh, we have a way that you can help us keep producing more shows like it. You can head on over to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and uh, pledge some of your hard-earned dollars to help us keep the lights on over here. There are various tiers that you can uh, pledge at. We've uh, gone over them on the show a few times in the past, you know, a few times. Um, but you can go over to that website and, and see the various tiers you can pledge at. When you do, you not only help us keep the show going, but you also get a little something for yourself. Maybe a personalized movie recommendation list from me and Sarah. Mm-hmm. Maybe even the chance to pick a movie that we have to review on the air. Uh, and you can do that once a year, and it can be literally any movie you want. So sounds like a pretty good deal for me. I am looking forward, Sarah, to making you uh, have more Farhadi in your life. You know, some more of that... Uh, that uh, not in your stomach feeling is probably going to be coming your way pretty soon. I'm I'm starting to feel that climb up the roller coaster at this point. Are we watching a Farhadi next week? We we are. So in in the second segment today, obviously we're going to be talking about Sarah's pick, Dracula, which I have never seen. But for next week's pick, that's mine, and I can't let the opportunity pass to subject Sarah to more of Farhadi's greatness. So we will be talking about 2011's A Separation. It's uh, one of my very favorite films of that entire decade. So needless to say, Sarah, you are going to have a real treat slash anxiety fest for you Sign coming up. up on next week's episode. <laughs> I'm already waving my hands uh, on the on the drop down the roller coaster ride. So buckle up. Let's go. Oh, man. Make sure you are buckled in. Listeners, one last bit of bookkeeping before we get into that review of Dracula. You'll notice that we've talked a lot about this uh, second segment, but we haven't actually seen said what the second segment is called, and that's because Sarah and I still haven't figured out exactly what we want to call it. We've narrowed it down to a few options, so if you want to maybe have a hand 
in the show. We invite you to go over to our Twitter uh, at CBelievePod. Uh, here in a little bit, we're going to be putting up a Twitter poll where we put up the 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 top three options, I think, for what we want to name this second segment, what we're going to refer to it as going forward. You can all vote on it, and we will definitely take that under advisement as we kind of put a name to this this new thing that we're trying to accomplish. It's going to be something that I'm I'm looking forward to doing a lot, but I'm going to look forward to it more if I can actually refer to it as something other than the second segment. So <laughs> definitely head on over to Twitter and uh, let us know your thoughts on that. And also uh, head over to Twitter any other week as well, and feel free to talk with us about what we talked about in the most recent episode, what you'd like to see in future episodes, um, come and talk with us. We'd love to keep that conversation going. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Well, listeners and Kevin, welcome to Castle Welch Larsen. Uh, on this new segment, we are going to be talking about the 1931 Dracula, which is a movie that I picked for this week. Um, it's the original universal horror movie. If you're at all familiar with Dracula, you're probably familiar with this version of him, like the vampire as a suave kind of handsome noble with a very Hungarian accent um, who has moved from his Transylvanian castle to London, where people begin to mysteriously die with bite marks on their necks. And it falls to several ordinary people to try to solve the mystery and then free themselves from the vampire. So, Kevin, um, I'm curious to know, this is a pretty iconic movie. It's been around for about 90 years now. Um, it's got a really long history. People tend to think of the original Dracula as being this particular movie and not even necessarily the book. Um, it's kind of iconic. So I was curious to know, did the iconography hold up for you um, or did it fall flat and anemic? <laughs> anemic. I like it. Uh, the iconography, I would actually say, is absolutely the the film's strongest point i mean mm. just the the shots we get of bella lugosi with that key light on his eyes so they've got this yeah. piercing glow to them the just the 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 stare that he levels at people the way that uh we see mina kind of get that look in her own eyes mm. uh the the spider webbed sets uh i think of that um at, you know at the climax where we see dracula uh, walking Mina down those stairs inside the the abbey, and Renfield is is confronting them, looking up at them, and just I don't know. There, there's a scale, I guess, to it that you can see why this film really fired the imaginations of of a lot of people, and why it kind of uh, that iconography persists to this day. I, I will say that I don't know that anything outside of the iconography really. Mm. Uh, held up quite as strongly to me. I and, and this is something that I'm 
curious to talk out with you because full disclosure, I'm not actually the biggest fan of of Dracula the book. Mm. Like Bram Stoker's Dracula, um I am just I don't find it all that engaging. The epistolary novel format just doesn't do much for me. And I'm always kind of looking in adaptations of Dracula for ways where it can kind of take the same basic story structure and shed all of the kind of crusty stuff that doesn't work so well. I'm actually, I don't know if this will be a heresy for me. I'm, and you tell me if, if this is heretical to you, but I actually really like Francis Ford Coppola's oh. Bram Stoker's Dracula from the nineties. And I don't know, after seeing this one, it's the Coppola version might still be my favorite screen adaptation. So that might be my heresy, but I, I but please uh, let me know what you think of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So the Coppola version um, is a movie that I like to describe as a hot mess, emphasis on both hot and mess. Um, and it's a movie that I also appreciate very much. Kind of similar to the 1931 Dracula, there's a lot going on with the costuming and the set design, and it also feels very iconic but in a very different way it's got a it's got a more grandiose sensibility to it i think um and it's a lot more fashion forward and it's a little bit more willing to lean into the things that the original 1931 dracula just sort of insinuates um and i really think that the strength of the 1931 dracula is in the insinuation so this is a movie that came out just before the haze code really started to kick in so it's allowed to be a little bit more creepy and iffy and um, sexy isn't really the right word for it, but like a lot of movies of that time were. This is a movie that is sort of trying to show a form of restraint in anticipation of that code. So every time Dracula bends over somebody, the camera fades out and you're left to imagine, well, what did he actually do? How did he actually bite this person? Like what happened here? And so... A lot of the insinuation, I think, is of this person as an invader who is here, but nobody believes that he's here. Nobody believes that this person is a danger. So the thing about this movie that really works for me are just kind of the one-off asides that feel very powerful. Like you, I don't think this is necessarily even the best version of Dracula, but because it is so influential on basically every other monster movie that came after it for decades. Um, it's a movie that I feel a lot of like love and respect for. And then I always end up feeling surprised by bits and pieces of it. So there's a scene shortly after Count Dracula gets into London where he comes across a violet seller on a street corner and she's just trying to make enough money in order to get by. And this man who is dressed very finely, top hat, full coat, like, black tie he's dressed to go to the opera shades of jack the ripper yeah definitely like shades shades of jack the ripper but also like the thing that scares me the most about it is that he can get away with doing this on a lit street corner and nobody even notices this woman is just kind of left abandoned and dead after dracula has bitten her and he drinks her dry and then he goes about his business looking for more uh, looking for more victims and i personally find that very terrifying and also very knowing, uh, knowing that there are predators out there. The, you know, the interesting thing about Lugosi's performance, and this was something that I wasn't 
expecting from this version. You hear about Bela Lugosi's Dracula, and it's just so built up. And so going into this film, having not seen it before, I kind of was expecting him to have this... I'm having difficult... like um, Sort of the supernatural aura about him in Mm -hmm. all of his scenes, where he's just constantly, you know, this is the, the, the great vampire Dracula, kind of that aura hovering around him at all times uh, as Todd Browning shoots him. But really, the way that Browning directs a lot of these scenes, Dracula kind of just looks, you know, the, the performance is, is very um, disciplined. I mean, Lugosi just, mm-hmm. he, he glides and he's got that ramrod straight posture. But the way Browning kind of situates him in the frame and among the other actors, he kind of just seems like, another guy like he doesn't strike you as a you know this this feral animalistic monster he's kind of just he's a count Mm -hmm. who also happens to be a vampire yes but the that makes the the moments when he does you know hypnotize somebody with those eyes or when he you know he bends over a, a sleeping young woman with the you know and his hands those those long fingers are just sort of outstretched that the contrast between that and the earlier scenes where he's just sort of saying hello to people at the opera, that's really striking and something that I wasn't really expecting from this version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he feels like an ordinary man who is accustomed to incredible privilege. And I think that's the thing that scares me mm. about him the most is that he knows that he can take whatever he wants and he's going to take it and he doesn't care what you think. And I just I personally find that quite terrifying. Um, but Going back to the point that you had about the way that Bela Lugosi carries himself, I was curious to know what you thought about one of the other performances in this movie, like another very showy performance. Um, how did you feel about the character of Renfield? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ren- I actually, you know, I was Renfield caught me off guard because that's actually the the biggest departure from the source material is mm-hmm. that in this film version renfield is the one who first encounters dracula rather than jonathan harker Mm -hmm. like he renfield is the one who goes to transylvania renfield's the one who encounters dracula's brides renfield is the one who uh you know it, it has that first moment where he sees dracula on his home turf and that caught me off guard um and i actually really like it as an adaptation choice i think it makes in a lot of ways, a lot more sense. And it makes Renfield a more interesting character to me, rather than just sort of a madman who happens to know about Dracula. He's somebody who is really intimately bound up in Dracula's plans and how Dracula goes about doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And the 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 performance, uh, the actor who plays him, is just, it, it is a very kind of silent movie performance. He's constantly you know, he's hit he's hunched and he's you know bugging out his eyes and he's really you know chewing every bit of scenery he can get his teeth into yeah. but i think that, that actually i i i liked him a lot in this movie and i'll tell you why it's because he was one of the only his was one of the only fun performances for me mm. i i wasn't really a huge fan of like Jonathan Harker, who's kind of the poster boy of like, lots of weird stuff is going around. Oh, well, it's probably nothing. <laughs> um, which I, you know, grew for me, you know, unfortunately got a little tiresome after a little while. So when Renfield comes on and he's just essentially being Gollum on screen, yes. I 
I thought that was a hoot and I really liked it a lot. Dwight Fry is the is the actor for for Renfield. And actually, it's funny that you should mention Gollum because I thought Gollum for the first time the other day when I was watching this movie again for this episode. Um, the other performance that actually really works for me is one that's also kind of focused on physicality, but isn't really quite as showy as Dwight Fry's uh, performance. And that's Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. Um, he kind of carries himself almost like a cowboy, like a middle-aged cowboy um, who knows what he's about and understands fundamentally who Dracula is the moment that he first shows up. Um, there's a moment where he just casually pulls out a crucifix, almost like it's a six shooter or something. And uh, I just, I appreciate his posture. I appreciate his, his, straightforwardness um about confronting a vampire in a living room just with a with a crucifix so that's one of the other um performances that also works for me and it's also one that kind of balances this movie out i think in terms of theme because i could see dracula like this version of dracula being considered quite xenophobic because dracula is an invader from another country that's considered to be less civilized and he's come to london and he's going to kill all of your women and that theme is certainly there but um there are other characters who are also not from london who are not native to london who are allowed to like live and be in good like who are, who are allowed to be good people who are allowed to have agency within this story and so um, the character of Van Helsing also works for me in this particular movie too. I that that's a really good observation about Van Helsing being in te- an integral part of the of the story, not just because he serves a plot important purpose, but also he does um, provide a counterpoint to the the inherent xenophobia of the source material, which I think is actually one of its strengths. Uh, I, I like how Stoker's novel is basically Dracula is the exemplar of the decadent continental European who has come to England to uh, corrupt the, the the Victorian purity and the Victorian morals mm-hmm. of, you know, ye olde England. <laughs> and I, I like how uh, the moments where we kind of see that that hint of of sexuality in 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 the subtext is is really interesting here i I, there's a moment where uh renfield you know creeps out a a, one of the servant girls and she you know faints dead away Mm -hmm. and we see renfield crawl on all fours over to her you know with this this horrible look on his face it's 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 the same sort of thing that dracula does but it's the the setting is all wrong. Whereas Dracula is victimizing these these young women, but he's got this this cruel elegance to him. Renfield mm-hmm. is basically an animal, and the way the scene is shot, he he's he seem, he comes off as a rapist. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, and yeah, and the fact that the 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 movie leans into that, I thought was interesting. Yeah, and I mean that's the same vibe that I get with the scene with Dracula and the Violet Cellar. It's just that Dracula is more practiced at it. He knows what he's doing. And that's mm. that is where the inherent horror in this particular movie lies for me is that it understands that there are people out there who are capable of doing monstrous things to other human beings and they can become very good at it. Yeah, I, I guess when when I was watching this film, the thing that I was kind of hoping for and and this is not entirely fair, but because it was shot by Carl Freund, the cinematographer, mm-hmm. he also he also worked on the the great Metropolis. And mm-hmm. you know, I think of Metropolis and just how florid it is and how 
you know, you watch it today and still feels very modern just in its techniques and the way it portrays characters and even things like, you know, violence and terror and uh, attraction. All of those things are very much obvious in Metropolis. And watching Dracula, it almost felt like, I almost wish it had been a silent film because I think Mm -hmm. that then there wouldn't have been so many talky scenes of of people standing around trying to convince each other that Dracula is who he is. And we could have really focused in on those, like you said, those those images that just feel like a gut punch where Dracula is victimizing and brutalizing these young women without kind of a lot of distraction about trying to explain it all away. Yeah, yeah, I could see that working really well. It's funny, when I was watching it, I also noticed that there isn't really very much music at all. And part of me wonders mm. if the movie feels very utilitarian, partly because it doesn't really quite have those camera flourishes or quite the same level of artistry as as Metropolis does. But then there's also it feels like there's a dimension missing because there isn't really much of a score to speak of. Um, so it, it's definitely one of the more utilitarian adaptations of the story, I think. Um And to me, that kind of makes what is so great about it pop out all the more because there are some very like there's some clumsy camera work in a few places, like a few things feel a little bit blurry, like it's restored from old, old footage. But the moments that really do work, like those the lights on Bela Lugosi's eyes or the way that he stoops over somebody, I think, um, in contrast to everything else is what really, really works for me here. Yeah, and, and you know, I I actually kind of like the fact that there is such a little music. You know, there, there's there's a lot of dialogue, and there's no you know there's no music underlying it. The even a lot of the the more dramatic scenes are very, like you say, utilitarian. There's no dramatic soundtrack for that either. And in a way, I I like how that it, it allows you to not be distracted by mm-hmm. anything. You can just focus on on what's going on, and all that dead air begins to feel almost suffocating in a way like the these people in this house kind of waiting for night to fall and dracula to to come again that dead air kind of feels like we're in that house with them it doesn't Mm -hmm. permit us as much removed from the events and i don't know whether it was intended or not i thought it it resulted in a very potent effect undead air (laughs) (laughs) undead air well uh, I, I'm really glad that I had the chance to to sit down with this, though, and I'm really glad that you kind of made this the the inaugural uh, film for for the second segment because you know nobody likes to admit that they've just not seen the most iconic Dracula adaptation in cinema history, especially somebody who's an actual film critic. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what is so great about this segment is that we don't have to be, you know, chagrined that we didn't see it before. We can just enjoy it for what it is and kind of also enjoy the the fact that a lot of the presuppositions we might have had about a movie, just seeing these movies and coming to them fresh is is a real treat, especially when you find that maybe your estimation of them doesn't necessarily fit into the hallowed place that they have in in the cinema pantheon and i know i i just it's it's a new experience and it's a a really great one so i enjoyed this the the experience of watching dracula a lot and i'm glad that you finally made it possible for me to to stop feeling ashamed and just go for it oh i'm so glad yeah this this feels like a good opportunity to say um i don't know you get to see 
whatever movie for the first time and then reevaluate it. I don't know about you, but if I haven't seen a movie and somebody expects me to have seen it half the time, I'll just smile and nod and then they'll assume that I just have whatever the cultural consensus is about what that movie is and where it stands. And uh, it feels really good to be able to just sit down and make a decision, I guess, for yourself, like whether or not it actually holds up or doesn't. And then in the meantime, like if you get to watch something great, then you get to watch something great for the first time. And you can't really take that away. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you had a chance to watch uh, the 1931 Dracula for the first time, like me, and you had thoughts about it, uh, obviously share those with us. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. I'm curious to know uh, if anyone else out there just uh, had my same reaction or uh, any other reaction to uh, something that's as iconic as as this film. Like we mentioned earlier in the episode, next week's uh, selection for the segment is going to be Asghar Farhadi's A Separation. So if you want to catch up with that in anticipation of next week's episode, so you can uh, join the conversation there, obviously definitely do that. But uh, yeah, for now, I think that wraps up this first the, the this maiden voyage i guess of of this new segment i'm glad that it didn't end up the way uh dracula and renfield's voyage did with <laughs> you know uh a ship disaster captain, and like, death yeah no no ship captains tied to the wheel dead on arrival um hopefully that doesn't happen with us for any of these future movies either yeah, I, I do have to say uh, before we, we sign off that I really dug the, the ship captain's silhouette. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the way that we we saw the that, but I don't know. I, I, I felt like that was just a wonderful touch, and it's touches like that that made me appreciate this film. Uh, but for now, listeners, that is episode 319 of Seeing and Believing. Thank you so much for joining us on it. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch-Larsen, and we'll see you next week on the show. Take it easy. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.